I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is produced on Gadigal land. Someone tapped me on the shoulder a few years ago because in the beginning, I was, everybody love your body because that's all I knew. And someone said to me, Tyron, I can't love my body. There's absolutely no way. Then I understood there's varying degrees and levels and you can like it, you can be okay with it. But what we can all do is make the choice to be kinder to ourselves. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. I was lucky enough to MC the first day of the recent Women in Media conference here in Sydney. It was a really inspiring day with some phenomenal speakers and I wanted to share some of my highlights with you. Taryn Brumfit first came to our attention about 10 years ago when she posted before and after images of her body on Facebook. Now that post went viral, spurring Taryn to share her powerful message of body acceptance and self-compassion through her body image movement campaign. She spent the last 10 years empowering people to discover what's possible when you embrace your life and purpose, and in 2022 was named Australian of the Year. Here she is chatting to Natalie Barr. Let's go back to May 2013, that Facebook post that most of us remember, and two photos go viral. In one of them, you look very ultra fit. In the other one, you look like most of us would say, Uh, a normal woman. It's seen by more than 100 million people. You spend the next year speaking to every major news outlet right around the world. From the moment you pressed send on that Facebook post, what was the biggest change in your life? Well, that's really hard to answer, but sometimes I don't think through the things that I do or the things that I say, and I never kind of anticipated with any strategy what I was going to do with that photograph. It was simply I was speaking to some friends who struggled with their body image, and I thought, ah, maybe I could, I'm a photographer, so uh, I was a photographer. So I thought creatively, maybe I could just start a conversation about bodies and we can acknowledge that health is not just physical, it's emotional, it's mental, it's spiritual. And so I posted that photograph. Now at the time, I'm a photographer, I have three young children, I'm living in Adelaide, I have no interest in having a public profile, I'd never done any media in my entire life. And then 100 million people within days I mean, it was so silly. Uh, Someone got off a Qantas flight and rang me, one of my friends, and said, you made the in-flight news. (laughs) And I had a Russian film crew before they all went kind of Russian and came to my house to spend three days with me to talk about how I learned to embrace and love my body. So what people saw was the media, and then there was Ashton Kutcher. 
just quietly. Um, yeah, hang on. This is good for the world. I Ashton know. Kutcher. It's, a, it's like in my LinkedIn. It's in every bio. It's like a, a decade later, and I'm like, Ashton Kutcher's dead. <laughs> <laughs> I think, it, but for me, there was this kind of world of this media frenzy. I mean, my story made most uh, headline news in most countries around the world. But what people didn't see was over 7,000 emails and messages from people sharing their heartbreaking stories of how they felt about their bodies. And my dad always taught me that in life, if you know something that can help others, it's your duty and it's your responsibility to stand up and do. Uh, so I, I thought, okay, I have an optimism bias that also gets me in trouble. I started getting back to those 7,000 emails and messages. And eventually I thought, oh, I'll just write a book. And I thought, there we go, world, problem solved. Here's a bunch of stories about how we feel about our bodies done and it required so much more and that's when I thought, I'll just make a film. How hard can that be? Mm, yes. Hard. When you posted it, when you, when you talked about you not being happy with the, the ultimate fitness shot, that was really raw, wasn't it? Because it surprised a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, so many women judge their bodies so harshly and give themselves a hard time and and what I now know 10 years on we really sideline ourselves in life we diminish our power we stop saying the things that we want to say because of how we feel about our bodies for a really long time it has been sort of parked into this women and weight and hashtag love your body but now it's it is for everybody it's about how we all feel about our bodies but my great interest is in how do we get more women when we're talking about equality I think the fastest way there is if we all just stop saying negative things about our bodies ever again that is the quickest way to change when we walk out of these doors, if we just stop that and we stop judging other people's appearance. Done. Do you know how much more time and energy we would have? Enormous amounts. And we can do that right, right now, today. Okay, there's, that's a good message. We can all go out there and we can stop the hash, we, we can stop, you know, believe in the hashtags. But when you are standing in front of the mirror and you are going, what about this bit? And what about these bits? How do we be honest? And how do we love those bits? <laughs> it's a reframe on the parts of our body that we continue to give a hard time to. How can we just reframe that thinking? Because is it helpful? Does it make you feel good? Does it make you feel powerful? Does it make you feel confident? It doesn't. It holds us back. We don't also have to love our bodies. We could just like them or be okay with them. Body neutrality is as important. And it's a, someone tapped me on the shoulder a few years ago because in the beginning... I was, everybody love your body, because that's all I knew. But I'm also very hard and fast and I'm very black and white at times. And someone said to me, Taryn, I can't love my body. There's absolutely no way. So then I understood that there's, there's varying degrees and levels and you can like it, you can be okay with it. But what we can all do is make the choice to be kinder to ourselves and I love the fact that the science is now coming out to show that self-compassion is the key to having a better relationship with our bodies. You wanted to raise $200,000 to make the documentary. You didn't raise $200,000. You raised more than $330,000. Nearly 9,000 people donated to that. It was one of the most successful crowd-funded campaigns this country has ever seen. When you got that final figure, what was your reaction? 
oh, I've got to make a film now. How do I do that? No, I mean, well, partly it was. Like, here we go. I'd never made a film before. I was a photographer um, and I enjoyed telling a story, but I thought, gosh, this is a really big undertaking. But we got there because I formed an excellent team of people around me. I noticed on your website um, a lot of people say this is a film every woman should see, take your sister, take your, your mother, take your daughter to see this film. It's amazing. As a mum of boys, I, and I've always been surrounded by boys, what have you found about boys' body image and, and men's body image since you've been on this journey? Yeah, it's, it's pretty heartbreaking to think that in Australia 77% of Aussie kids are in body image distress, all genders. This is not just for girls and it's not just for women. Our boys are really struggling as well. We know of that number, that 77%, that they are 24 times more likely to be depressed or have anxiety. It's alarming for everybody. The good news is that we know that children and all of us with a higher appreciation of our body image, we're more likely to move our bodies, we're more likely to eat fruit and vegetables. For our kids, they're less likely to smoke, drink, take illicit drugs and vape. So we, we have a really long list of reasons why we need to get this right and how we need to take this conversation from hashtag love your body to this is really important for our physical health and our mental well-being. And I guess that's why I'm very grateful, a little tired, as Australian of the Year because this country is now ready for that conversation. So you're having this conversation, you've made the film, you're out in this space, you're knocking on doors. Then you become Australian of the Year. What on earth is that like? Well, it's day 226 <laughs> and I don't know whether I'm counting up or counting down. I'm not sure. Um, for a long time, you know, I've been knocking on doors and wanting to be heard and I've had to sort of go by my life's philosophy, which is polite persistence wears down resistance. That's my mindset. But it's been really nice to have the federal government and policymakers and the education department in WA just greenlit our resources for 300,000 students. I love it that people are listening because this is not sort of anecdotal in how we feel. Everything we do is based on science. I'm the co-executive director of the Embrace Collective which is a health promotion charity focused on the prevention of eating disorders and body image issues. And I run that alongside Dr. Zali Yeager, who is the global go-to on body image. And we've come together as a beautiful collaboration to take, I guess, my focus on creativity and impact and reach and hers from the world of academia and science. And we've brought them together. And our mission this year is to reach a million children. We'll get there in all of the settings that children live, learn and play, all the environments, early childhood, primary school, secondary school, sports clubs, public health awareness campaigns. We're going to leave nothing, no stone unturned, and we're going to get this problem right. And with a lot of coverage and with your name out there comes the criticism. Let me put something to you. If we embrace our bodies when they are unfit and overweight, we're fueling an obesity crisis. What do you say to that? Because you would get that a lot. It's just, it's so simple. You know, people who have a higher appreciation of their body image look after their bodies. There's a statistic around eating disorders. Uh, since 2019, eating disorders have doubled in five to 12-year-olds. Five-year-olds. And everyone wants to be quick to say, ah, the pandemic and what's happened since and all of these things. It's actually not. It's two decades 
of unhelpful health promotion from life being it Norman, all the shame and stigma that's been around for two decades, that's what's got us here to this point. So we need to be brave enough to now look at the science and put our hands up and say, what we've done has not worked. We are not healthier and we're not happier, but let's listen to the science. It tells us exactly what to do. And that's the conversation that I have to have with lots of people this year. It's not always easy because people don't want to listen to it. But if you could take that science and understand that it actually has a role to play in all of the conversations we're having today about inequality, start by watching the film. The number one uh, piece of feedback we had after people watched the film was I wish I had seen it when I was younger. So we made Embrace Kids uh, last year, we released it, but there was many times where we struggled to tell the story and be safe and effective in doing so. Um, and there was one particular day in the office where we were all trying to problem solve, how can we show bodies in this film but we can't show stereotypical bodies because it does more damage? What are we going to do? And I think it's like one of the first times in a decade I've had like a, like a, a cry in front of people. I'm like, I don't know what to do. And then I went home that night and I woke up in the middle of the night. I'm like, we can't show human bodies, but we can show dogs. Because we never say to the sausage dog, you should look like the greyhound um, <laughs> or vice versa. We don't do that. We accept and we love them for who they are. And why aren't we doing that mm -hmm. with human beings? Mm -hmm. um, so it probably was one of the worst days of my directing days uh, because we went to the beach with 20 dogs. Um, <laughs> And I went up to the cinematographer on the day and I said, and I'd worked with him on the first film, and I said to him, like, how's your day going? And he said, it's the worst day of my life. <laughs> and, and yeah, don't work with kids and animals, and we did both, but it's a, it's a beautiful film and it's a really uh, important film for families and people to watch. It's not just about body image, it's about all the big issues our kids are facing, social, like social media, representation, diversity, bullying, disability. We, we cover it all in this film. And my 16-year-old, when he saw it, and I said to him, what did you think of the film? He said to me, it's better than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and I was like, thank you, teenage son, for bestowing a five-star oh, review. That's a lot for a teenage son. I know, right? I took it. Yeah. I ran with it. Um, but if I can give you homework, I guess there's three things. Watch Embrace, the first film. Watch Embrace Kids. And, and the third thing is never say anything negative about your body or anyone else's body again. Problem almost solved. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The standout panel session for me was the business of media. 
with four absolute powerhouses in the same room. Just outstanding. Now, these remarkable women have all negotiated the streaming revolution, the rise of the podcast, the flight from print to digital, and they shared some great insights into each of their respective areas of the industry. Who am I talking about? Beverly McGarvey, Executive Vice President, Chief Content Officer and Head of Paramount Plus and Paramount ANZ. Jane Huxley, CEO of R Media. Amanda Lang, Chief Commercial and Content Officer of the Foxtel Group. And co-founder and Chief Creative Officer at Mamma Mia, Mia Friedman. Asking the tough questions is Anita Jacoby. Bev, I'd like to start with you first. You had to diversify from a single free-to-air channel to building a rich ecosystem across multiple digital platforms. What's at the core of your strategy in addressing this rapid change? I think for us, it's about knowing our audiences and where they are. Obviously, we used to have a single free-to-air business, and that was great. We could play The Simpsons, it would do 1.5 million, and that was lovely. And we thought we were busy. But it turns out we weren't. So as audiences have moved to different platforms, we have to get our content in front of them. So in fact, the challenge is the opportunity to get content in front of all of those platforms, but more importantly, to be able to monetize the content. Obviously, we all work in the content space and we all want to get our content, our news, our entertainment in front of people. But more importantly, we have to be able to pay to produce that content. Production costs are going up. We're in a cycle at the minute where the industry is quite challenged. So being able to monetize that content and understanding how to monetize that content because 1.5 million people, apart from the Matildas, they don't watch anything anymore. So you have to go, we'll get 300,000 here and a couple of hundred thousand here. You have to be able to spread it across everything. So that's kind of at the core of the strategy, putting the content where people want to see it. What do you think is the future of free-to-air? Where do you think it's going? I think there is a future for free-to-air. I think what we really talk about and what we try and talk about internally is free-to-view. So I think there'll always be a place for people who, Australians need to have their news, their sport, a certain amount of entertainment, scripted content that they can all watch, no matter what their financial background or whatever it is, however they choose to do things. Increasingly what we're seeing, which everyone's seeing, people are watching 10 on the live stream on Template, and that's true for all the channels. And I think that IPBS serving of what is free-to-air content will become free-to-view content. When that happens, I don't know. But I think there will always be a place for what we will call free to air, although it may not be distributed the same way. And I guess because we wrestle with the digital divide, you know, we've got, sorry, well, I'll just get here, but we do have a whole area of rural and regional Australia that can't access broadband. So I guess free to air will be here because we need that. It, it will be there and it will absolutely service those audiences. And at some point in the future, those audiences will also migrate. But you're absolutely right. And we have a duty to provide all Australians with that content. And Amanda, you've obviously repositioned Foxtel as a streaming aggregator, which is, a, you know, you've had to do that as a business model. So how have streaming platforms, you know, Binge and KO, altered the Foxtel business model? I think it's just building on the theme that Bev talked about, which is it's just finding new audiences. I mean, really, when KO launched, which was the first streaming service we launched, we had all these rights. Foxtel had never got beyond 30% penetration, so there was 70% of Australians that had actually never seen the content. It was just another way of finding the audience. And so it made sense to monetize the content, which obviously costs a lot of money, just by having more people viewing it. And, and equally with Binge, when I first got to Foxtel, we, re, sort of, we recut all of our, con- our entertainment content deals to make sure that we could launch Binge, 
launch a service off the back of um, those deals which we already had in place. So it's just finding the extra audiences. I think, I think as Bev said, it's about finding, you have to create content, which is part of it is giving people what they know they want, but you've also got to then find a way, which, which is how technology helps, to surprise them with something that actually they're going to love, but they may not have looked for and may not have found. And so I think you've got to find all the audiences to monetize the content that's expensive to make and it's expensive to buy. And then you've just got to find the right way to serve up what people want, give them the audience what they want, but also surprise them with some things that you think through your experience and with data they're going to love. And that will sort of drive the engagement. And that obviously for, for us, we're a subscription business, drives the engagement, drives the retention, which drives the revenue. It's interesting, you've got content partners who are actually their own streaming platforms. And so how will you tackle the issue of some of your suppliers potentially becoming your competitors? I think there's a term actually that used to be used in magazines of frenemies. Cleo and Cosmo were frenemies back in the day. So I think it's a great example. So I run Binge and Bev runs Paramount Plus. We are in hand-to-hand combat every single day. But Paramount Plus is on the Foxtel box. They're our friend. Paramount Global sells us channels, movies and content. I think, you know, in in fashion, in media, in almost every industry, finding collaborations and ways and and partnerships, kind of everyone's doing it, but the ones that are succeeding is where you're finding a really creative, clever way to find a partnership, again, that builds value for you both. When I started at Foxtel, there was no apps on the box and it was sort of Netflix on the box over my dead body, but now there's 10 apps on the box, we want more, you know, our enemies are now our friends and partners. Uh, I think that's... That's the way of the world. Bev, have you got a comment on that? No, but I think it's true. There's an, you have to be able to collaborate with people. I think that's the great point. There is no such thing as these people are my enemy and I don't do business with them. You have to be able to work with everybody. You have to find a way through and you have to find a win-win. Because if you find a win-lose, a year from now, you're going to be talking to that person again and they will remember that. So you want to find a way for everybody to come out of it, getting what they need. And there is a, there is a way to do that. I think the business is so complex now but that makes it more interesting. It's much more interesting than it used to be because there's so many ways to do things. Jane, now you're the CEO of R Media and you, your incredible stable of well-known popular magazines, brands that we've heard and grown up with, Women's Weekly to Gourmet Traveller. What's your strategy for developing creative solutions for brands that want to reach women? I think, you know, just building on from my co-panellists here and I would just comment there, if you want to get that, collaboration and that cooperation happening, give it to women, right? <laughs> I think that, you know, a real game changer has been to have extraordinary women like this in these roles. And the way that negotiations are approached are completely different from the way that they used to be because there is space. We can all shine together. And I think that, you know, just listening to you two speak, this is why this change is happening. And I'd like to see a lot more of it. I'd like to see a lot more women, all of you, in, in you know, CEO seats and really senior roles, uh, really pushing the industry forward like that. Back to the question. I think, again, building on, on from what we said, what we're starting to see now is really formats are starting to matter less than they ever were before. They're all blending together. And I think a lot of the super aggregators, the multi-tech companies, have really started to conf- make confusion around whether or not it's a magazine or a website or social media, is it BVOD, is it SVOD, is it... It doesn't really matter. People are now searching for content wherever it is and they will find it because the search engines are now picking it up 
across all formats. So increasingly, formats are starting to not matter as much. Audiences can happen anywhere. They're happening across all of those channels. So content and brands matter more than anything else. And I think really when I come to think about our clients and being creative, it's the brands that draw them in first. These, you know, 100-plus-year-old brands matter more than ever. And ensuring that they are omnichannel brands with content that tells stories that resonate with all of our customers regardless of where they are. So we're able to meet the clients in sort of the, the Venn diagram, if you like, of content, of the brand itself, its heritage, and also with what the message are that our clients are looking for. The good news is that all of these things meet seamlessly. Content for us, when we're looking at commercial partnerships, is content that's still relevant to our audience. So what we bring is the magic of these brands. What we bring is what we know about technology, what we know about the formats that we have in our stable, and we're able to cut through with our audiences on that basis. You mentioned the word heritage, and there was a report last week that said that printed magazines are making a comeback and mentioned our media and that you're preparing to relaunch a print version of Elle, so Back to the Future. True or false? Yeah, we announced it yesterday. Oh, um, good. I, yeah, I missed it. Dan, Sorry. I would have announced it here anyway because everybody here can keep a secret. Elle's back, baby. I mean, it's interesting. These legacy formats, we're up 11% year on year in magazines. Marie Claire is up 18% in readership. Women's Weekly is growing in readership, but we also want to introduce them to other formats of content that we have. We've just launched australianwomensweekly.com.au. She's just turned 90. She's just got a first website. <laughs> and, you know, that, that's in response to a lot of the readers of that, of that you know, 90-year-old publication saying, we want more, we want it online. Well done, well done. And Mia, look, now your company's reached, um, I think, a staggering 7 million-plus women now, which is just extraordinary. And you obviously embrace digital platforms and early on and, and um, podcasts. But this week you've launched a whole new range of products for next year. Can you talk us through those and why you've done that? We're in a unique position in the media landscape because there are some really exciting young, small digital and media businesses and brands that are tiny. And then there are the big guns like my, my co-panelists and and many of the others, and we're in the middle. You know, we've got about 150 people working at Mamma Mia and about 99% of them are women. And that gives us a really unique and strong point of difference. It can also be really scary because we are not the big guns. And I think that the difference for us is that we have a core purpose. And because our core purpose is to make the world a better place for women and girls, that is different than when your core purpose is to make money for your shareholders. And I'm not dissing that because that's just a different core purpose, but it means that our, both our content decisions and our business decisions all go through that lens. And it makes for some terrible business decisions. Can you give us an example? I can give you an example. We don't support the paparazzi economy. We know that the paparazzi economy is based on basically men stalking women and children and taking photos of Carrie Bickmore dropping her kids at school and Zoe Foster Blake at the beach. And we choose not to monetize that. You know, it's things like that. And then it's, um, for example, one of the new products we're launching next year, we're doing a podcast which is about grief and all different types of grief. Now, I'm not kidding myself that anyone's going to be falling over themselves to sponsor that. It is not a commercial product. But we know that it will make the world a better place for women and girls if we do it. So it's really important. 
how do you all possibly put together a three to five year plan when we can't even work out what's happening tomorrow in this industry? I think honestly what you do is you're fairly accurate next year and beyond that you're making a, an assumption. You're putting together a series of assumptions. I think you know this, people will always want to watch content where they're going to watch it, exactly how they're going to watch it and precisely what they're going to watch will change. And what they're going to pay. And what they're going to pay, exactly. That will change and what we're going to pay. So you do have, you do have to do it, of course, but I think in this industry, beyond 12 months, you've got to be willing to be flexible. No, it, it's absolutely right. And, and I was sort of actually going through some old papers because I have a profound and very unfashionable love of paper. And so I was trying to sort of make myself look more modern. And I found these business plans from when I first joined Foxtel in 2018. And wow, so wrong. So, <laughs> but, you know, but, but, but you've, you've got you, you've to have, have a shot. You've got to have a guess. Best guess. It's just the best guess. I can imagine. I mean, it's just really tough in this market. Mia? Well, I mean, 12 months for, our, for us is, is laughable because, you know, we're indexed to women and we move with women, we change with women, we can say what we want. But, you know, for example, during COVID, there were times when women really wanted to lean in to the news and then sometimes within a couple of days we could see with our data that they really didn't and they wanted diversion. So we would pivot, so we would just go with women being indexed to that demographic and being the size we are, we've got an agility that allows us to do things quickly. And, and one of the things that when people join Mamma Mia, if they've come from bigger companies, can be exhilarating but also a lot because we do move very, very fast. With digital, you have to. So yeah, I've never been good at long term, which is why I'm not in charge of strategy. <laughs> <laughs> You're the creative brain. Yeah. 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 No, and I'm like, I, I want to do it and we need to get, you don't understand, we need to get it out now. Yeah. And Jane? Yeah, uh, we have a crystal clear five-year plan. So, you know, by 2027, we know exactly where we should be. It didn't survive year one. Uh, you know, this has been a crazy year this year, particularly in the ad sales market. And we didn't expect circulation would grow. So, uh, you know, on the upside and the downside, the plan is wrong. But I think what you can do is describe sort of the, the what you need to get done. So, you know, when we talk about it with a company, we talk about four things. We talk about protecting our core, which is these beautiful magazines and the legacy part of our business these brands that will endure for another 100 years. We are just the custodians of these brands right now. They need to be here in 100 years because Australian women need them to be here in 100 years. So protecting our core is really critical. We have to diversify our revenue. We're running right now 10 business models in the company. We're over-indexed in three of those. The next five years will see us smoothing those and that will be aided by the investments that we're making in technology but it will always come back to the core of content that we're in. We will pursue opportunities to verticalize. We bought the distributor. So we now have trucks and warehouses and freight systems that deliver magazines to every postcode in Australia twice a week. What else can we do with that? When you walk into a newsagent and you see all the giftware and, and all of that that's in newsagents now, that's us. We have a B2B business called Market Hub. We launched a B2B business called Content Shop which is all of the assets and archives that you can now click to buy, put it in your basket. And if you want to buy beautiful editorial home shots from us, we'll sell them to you. So 
Pursuing opportunities to verticalise is really critical to us. And then the fourth one is our people and our team. Treasure, value, engage, make sure that they want to be with us on the journey for the next five years. So whilst the plan itself doesn't survive contact with the enemy, what you can do is describe what it will look like, what it will feel like, and what's important to us. And that's really what we focus on. It's a good point, Jane. I think one thing that we all have in common and every media brand has in common in terms of our three and five year plans is diversifying revenue streams because the days of just relying on an advertising model are gone. The vast majority of digital spend go to Facebook and Google and now Amazon, who became one of the top three just by flicking on ads pretty much overnight. And so, for example, we've launched a subscription business. We have Lady Startup and uh, courses, we have summits, we have our podcast business, which we started sort of eight years ago. So we now have a huge part of our revenue, it comes from audio. So diversifying revenue streams and diversifying distribution channels are the two crucial things for any media business strategy. Risk creates opportunity. What are the highest, what's, give me an example of a risk where it's really paid off. For us, it would be in about 2012, Facebook told all media brands to pivot to video. And they did, mostly. You know, BuzzFeed, all the big brands. Yeah, they all sacked their, a lot of their writers. They employed a lot of video editors, video producers, and they pivoted to video. And then, of course, Facebook just went, yeah, nah. <laughs> and everyone was screwed. We pivoted to audio at that time, partly out of a gut feel that I had and partly out of just an, an inability to do video. I just didn't, we tried a couple of things and they just didn't work. And I just couldn't, I couldn't work out what Mamma Mia's video offering should be. So we pivoted to audio instead and that ended up being an incredibly positive risk for us. You all run companies that are investing heavily in data and that's really critical. What are the surprising benefits that you're deriving from this strategy? Bev, do you want to... I think one of the things that Amanda mentioned is really interesting, that you have to give audiences what they want, but sometimes you have to give them things that they want, but they don't know they want, and the data tells you that. And one of the obvious, but and greatly spoken about examples is something like Squid Game on Netflix. You have to have a particular algorithm to get that type of show to work globally. Like if a company, probably it might be different now, we're a bit, you know, Paramount Plus has been up about two years, but if you're a new streamer and you put up Squid Game on your second month, it's not going to be a hit. You have to understand that, oh, this show's starting to work outside its home market. Young men in English language speaking countries are starting to watch it. That's interesting. We're going to look at that and actually we're going to surface it to them. And we know that people like thrillers, like Squid Game. So every time they watch a thriller, we're going to serve the promo. So the data actually tells you there's this little show over here. And it's great because it means that people can watch different sorts of content and you can surface it to them. That personalization, the positive sides, and obviously there's lots of privacy laws, et cetera, that we all adhere to. But the positive side of it is that you shouldn't be getting served lots of things that you don't want. You should be getting served lots of things that you do want. You should be getting EDMs and messages to talk about shows that you'll actually want to engage in. And then beyond that, you'll be getting served advertising that actually you might want. So instead of my nine-year-old getting served an ad for an ID that she's not going to buy, she might get served an ad for something she's interested in or something that I'm interested in. If she's nine, she shouldn't be getting anything. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> but an ad that you're actually wanting to watch. And that's actually better for our clients because... There's so much wastage in advertising. The personalization and the data just makes all of our businesses better. And it's better for all of our customers because they will actually get what they want. Mm -hmm. And there's like a whole 
there's probably a whole panel in just that tiny bit of that conversation. Yeah, that's right. Amanda, in terms of driving subscribers to streamers? Yeah, every now and again, you do get really surprised by something you see in the data. I think there, a few years ago, there was a lot of companies investing a lot of money in data as if just the data by itself was going to tell you what to do. And the data is just dumb data. Data doesn't tell you what to do. You've got to kind of apply, frankly, a bit of gut, a bit of judgment, some instinct and some insights to make the data actionable. And so we've seen a lot of people, so there's been a bit of boom and bust and boom and bust and investment in data. But I love when it surprises you, when you, you look in it, and I'm, I'm not sort of like, you know, a beautiful mind, I can see the pattern. But sometimes you go, wow, that's interesting. People are watching that. Like some things are obvious. People who like that show are probably going to like that show. But every now and again you see, yeah, sort of an association or a viewing pattern, like, wow, I'm surprised that people who like that particular lifestyle show are drawn to that kind of movie. And the beauty of the data when you've got a streaming and, you know, an IP-based product is that it's instant. You can play around with the carousels and you can put things here and there and, and try and lead people to their next favourite show before they even know it. And you need to do that because, you know, you need that engagement. So my learning about data is, and I felt like I was sort of saying it and no one really thought it was true, was that the data itself doesn't tell you what to do. And I think that's really interesting yeah. because data's also looking in the rearview mirror. It tells you something that's already happened and you have to use your brain to work out what happens next. So it's one segment of information, and it's brilliant if you know how to use it, but you've got to have other stuff. It, it won't do everything for you. Jane? Well, I mean, I can tell you that the magazine buying capital of Australia is Toowoomba. <laughs> they just buy magazines up there like nobody's business. I think with data, the thing that I'm most interested in is now what it can do next. The layer of AI on top of data is really interesting. So when I look at all of the content that we have at our media, all of the text, all of the pictures, all of the videos from maybe the last 15 years or so are really well digitized in, and in one place. So we've been starting to experiment with AI on the top of that, whether or not we can teach AI to talk Marie Claire, whether or not we can take 10 years of Cirque data for Gourmet Traveler, we, so Cirque data is how many sell, we can have AI look at what the cover was. We can have AI then take the CERC data, disaggregate the cover, and tell us what covers will work moving forward. Desserts. Yeah. D overhead shots, single plate, dark covers. Always work on Gourmet Traveller. Love a cover. What's really interesting is with all the data that we have, and you're right, it's dumb. It doesn't do anything by itself. But where the magic will happen is when we look at generative AI, whether or not we can take this data and now use it to create content that will be relevant and cut through. Now, I will say, AI, I call this adjacent intelligence. It is adjacent to my humans. It will not replace the content creators at our media on any of our brands because my beautiful, professional, passionate journalists will tell you what is coming. AI will then tell you what to do with it once it's here. So my journos will tell you on, on Marie Claire, what are the coats or boots of next winter? We can then train the AI layer to generate 10 ways to style, 10 ways to wear, 10 ways to store, 10 ways to watch. And that sits adjacent to the article and that's where the affiliate and marketplace links fit. So every piece of content that we generate now and in the past, we should be able to monetize six or seven ways with the multiple business models that we're running. And that is why we can scale the company with these extraordinary creators that we have. 
We don't need to double or triple, but we can change our EBITDA profile significantly from the data that we have and the technology that we're investing in. And that's what I'm excited about data in doing. I'd love to know a piece of advice from each of you about this industry that we can all take away. What would you tell people? I'll go to Bev. Honestly, I think the wisest thing, don't give up and be resilient. We work in a tough industry. This is a tough industry, but it's a great industry and we're all here because we love it. And I think that is the best piece of advice that you've got to understand that it is challenging, but the rewards are there. It isn't easy, it's, but if it was easy, it wouldn't be fun. If it was easy, we wouldn't appreciate it at the end. And I know that we're in a cycle that's challenging at the minute and maybe in two years, it'll be great. But then five years from now, it'll be hard again for a different reason. So you just got to keep going. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I started out in magazines back in the late 90s and went from magazines to TV and digital and we launched Stan and went to Foxtel. Like, there's so much change. So you have to definitely be open to change and see it as an opportunity. But I think if you want an easy ride, this is not the right industry. It is a really tough industry, but my goodness, they're the most interesting, creative, clever challenging, innovative people in the industry in every respect, people on screen, behind the scenes, the writers, in every part of the industry, there's really creative, interesting people. Um, it's incredibly stimulating, it's bloody good fun, uh, but yeah, it's tough. Jane? The thing that I find myself saying more than anything else right now is calm the farm. I would literally say that at work about three times, like, calm the farm, people. Firstly, this is work, right? So there's so many more important things that you should be running around with your head on fire about than what you do every day at the office. Don't believe what you think. Believe what you know. Don't bring the problems forward. They're not here today. Don't bring them forward. Don't imagine them. So calm the farm. There is not a problem that can't be solved with the following methodology. What is the current state? What is the desired state? What is the size of the gap? What are the three things you need to do to get where you're going? And so when people are running around like mad things at our media, it's calm the farm time for us. And, you know, these are strange times that we're in. They're crazy. They're competitive. They're changing. Just keep the farm calm and then everybody else will stay calm around you. Oh, I love that. I need it on a T-shirt. I've got it on a mug. I would say that when you work in media, a big mistake that I see and I, I, we all fall into is thinking that we are projecting outwards to our audience. I was taught by my first boss, Lisa Wilkinson, when I was work experience at Clio, that we're not creating content for ourselves, each other, our peers in the industry always look at what we're creating through the eyes of our reader and always walk in her shoes is one of the core values at Mamma Mia and it's the, the one that I use and draw on more than anything else. When I'm listening to any content that we make or consuming any of it, I'm always doing it not through the eyes of someone who works in the business but someone who doesn't and I think that that's something that we always have to remind ourselves. Look back at what you're creating through the eyes, ears, hearts and minds of your audience. Some very wise words there. So thank you so much for listening and for your ongoing support of Short Black. This is the final episode of Series 5, can you believe it? But don't worry, we have got a fantastic lineup for Series 6, so keep an ear out for that later in the year. In the meantime, please like, subscribe and even leave a review if you like. We'd love to hear from you. 
You have been listening to Short Black, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.